So great to have the opportunity today, Mike, to have a chat with you on the topic of operational resilience. I know it's a topic close to your heart and mine uh, from uh, your years of uh, experience in this area and leading some uh, pretty compl complex and hairy things. Uh, so I wanted to start today by uh, asking around the topic of we've had some pretty unprecedented times uh, over this year uh, and uh, we've seen some companies react in terms of operational resilience and in some ways uh, become even better through that. Mm. Uh, and I wondered if you had some commentary on that. Yeah, I mean, it's been fascinating to see some companies actually flourish and thrive as we've gone through this lockdown period. And I, 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 I don't think any of us really expected that to happen as we went into lockdown. It was all doom and gloom and everything, yes. you know, pessimism, etc. But, but actually, there's, there's a couple of companies that really stand out to me. Now, one of them is Zoom. Now, Zoom, obviously, we've all become used to. We've become used to communicating a lot on video. It's nice to actually be here face-to-face. -face it is. Even though we're two meters apart, <laughs> socially distant. But it's, um, you know, from, a, from a, 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 a product perspective, video collaboration has become embedded into our life. And, mm -hmm. of course, there's WebEx, there's Teams, there's a whole bunch of other companies that have grown uh, and been adopted a lot more. But Zoom has really come from relative obscurity from a consumer perspective into embedded into our day-to-day -day life. You know, my kids have been using it. Mm. I've been using it for non-work stuff. And, and they've grown and grown and grown very quickly and they've adapted as well as they've gone through that. And they've really weathered through a couple of storms. So there was a whole encryption gate and drop-in gate and all these <laughs> yeah. sorts of things that Zoom has happened. But, but what they've done is they've reacted very quickly in an agile way. And I don't mean agile in sort of yeah, development yeah. lifecycle, but I mean quickly, right? So they've actually gone from... Problem, talk about the problem openly, fix problem, right? And to me, that's agile resilience, right? That's really starting to build resilient methodology into everything they do, into how they make change. And when they've had outages, which of course they have, they've been relatively small and they've done a really good job of communicating, which of course is, I think, a part, really key part of recovery and resilience. And the other company um, was an interesting one. I went to drop my motorcycle off at the garage and they had these big visors on and I said, you know, where'd you get your visors from? And they said the company next to them in the, in the industrial unit next to them was a printer's and all of a sudden their business just went overnight as all the other companies that printed things just went out of business yep, yep. or stopped trading. So they didn't need menus anymore. They didn't need posters, advertising yep. events. Uh, and they spent about 24 hours sort of noodling over what they were going to do about it, whether they were going to shut the doors for good, whether they are going to furlough their staff. And they reinvented themselves as a PPE manufacturer. So they, re they realized that the tooling that they had could make masks, it could make visors, it could do all of that. So they thought, oh, we'll just do that. And so that was fascinating, going from actually a completely different product, and really you'd never really connect the dots between printing a poster and creating PPE. But they did that, and their business has thrived and flourished because of that, because there's been such a shortage of it as well. So for me, I think when you look at resilience, that to me is the ultimate goal for a company or an organization or even an individual is to reinvent themselves again and again and, and be able to do that very, very quickly in a very structured way. Yeah, and, and I think uh, I'm keen to pick your brains later in the conversation a little bit more on um, the sort of levels of uh, operational resilience and how people think about it. But it, it sounds like in, in those cases, those companies were certainly thinking about more than recovering from an outage, telling people about an outage. It was something more embedded about their resilient nature yeah. that uh, kind of guided them through that period. Yeah, and I think that's it. Resilience has taken a big leap from business continuity already. <clears throat> certainly in financial services where we really got used to the fact that business continuity was for the high risk, low, you know, high impact, low likelihood scenario. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, a pandemic, which is obviously taught us a lot, <laughs> yeah. but you know, a tsunami, uh, a nuclear war, whatever it may be, right? These are the things that we've been planning for historically in business continuity. And it's always about something has happened and then we will recover from it to mm. get back to service. Whereas resilience 
really the, the core of resilience, certainly the program that I built, was about building resistance to failure in the core, in the design. So you get to a point where um, if it happens, it happens, but it doesn't matter if the service continues. And so resilience has, become, has taken that leap from being proactive rather than reactive. Now it has to have some reactive elements to it as well, because yeah, yeah. as we've seen through this pandemic, you know, there are things that have happened that we could never have predicted, things that have happened not cleanly. So things haven't just stopped, they've kind of stuck in the middle a little bit and we didn't really have a good plan around that. But as we go beyond that, outside of financial service, I think more and more industries will start to adopt that a lot more. They'll start to think a lot more about how do they just design things to fail, right? So they consider about failure. And that's like cloud computing is, if you actually adopt cloud correctly, you sort of design for failure because of the nature of the infrastructure that you're using to host is not as resilient as the stuff you may have bought in your gold-plated five-star data center. Uh, and if you build that into the way that you build a service and design your service for your customers, your clients, or for yourselves, whatever it may be, you actually have built-in resilience now for your organization. And you, you go from business continuity through the journey of operate or technology resilience into operational resilience, which is looking at the end-to-end -end service, and then into sort of broader organizational resilience. And then I had this term, transformer companies, that I'm sort yes. of toying with, and I've, I've uh, released a a post, a blog post about that as well. But you know, for me, it's that agile resilience. It's that ultimate ability to flourish and to thrive through a resilience issue rather than actually just sort of shutting your doors or failing. Yeah, and I, I, I find your thought leadership in this area very provocative and very interesting. And it seems like in the industry generally, uh, there, there is a perception that uh, previously the, the sort of the, the resilience, sort of small voice knocking at the door of the board to say, this thing could happen, this pandemic, yeah. this terrorist event that's potentially uh, unlikely, but if it does happen, it's absolutely catastrophic. Uh, people that, uh, not fair to quite say, would pay lip service to it, but felt like the person who had that responsibility had, had a hard job to sort of get recognition for these things yeah. uh, to, to happen. But it feels like we're moving past that stage where People are, as you say, building systems to recognize failure and inherently sort of embrace that as a, an everyday BAU activity. Uh, and, and, and do, you see that, 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 do you see that happening? That's a positive movement in the industry? Absolutely. I think um, I've even seen a couple of roles called the chief resilience officer <laughs> for companies now that are sitting either as a director into a CIO or a CEO, or even in some cases at the table in the executive boards. Um, and I think more and more, look, you, you know, you're right. If you think back in the past, um, I was on the other side of the fence from my business continuity manager yeah. who would come and talk to me. And, and the vision I had of them was someone in a high-vis jacket with a clipboard and, <laughs> yes. and they come and say, you've got to do your annual attestation for business continuity. And, and, it, and it was a box-ticking exercise, right? Because we're like, well, this is never going to happen. I need to worry about this delivery of some stuff. Yeah, the, yeah. the business need this and the clients need this and the customers need it. This is never going to happen, so go away. Uh, yeah, 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 done, right? And um, obviously not quite as bad as that. I took it all seriously. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. you know, you, you get to a point where that perception is ingrained now in, in the nature of that, of that profession, which is really unfair because at the end of the day, business continuity professionals have, have spent years yes. uh, on thought leadership around resilience as well and organizational resilience. So now, though, as we've had a couple of events and as the regulators and financial services in particular started to really turn up the, the heat, rightly so, on, on banks and other uh, insurance companies, other financial services providers, Resilience has become much more a topic at the top, right? A topic at the board level, a topic at the executive committee. And so 
the regulators are putting pressure onto boards, the boards are putting pressure onto um, the executive committees, and obviously it's delivery focus uh, of a, an organization is now shifting into ensuring we have that by design. I don't think that any company has really solved this problem yet. Um, apart from someone like, uh, well, I say any financial services company hasn't really solved yeah. it yet, but some of these startups have the opportunity to do it. So if you look at like Revolut, for example, um, where they're sort of starting from scratch on their infrastructure and their environment, uh, that, that's an interesting opportunity for them to go down a Netflix route where Netflix have got Chaos Monkey. Yes. And um, yeah, they're constantly testing their environment, their application, their infrastructure to see if there's a problem or a flaw. And if there is, then they'll find it and they'll fix it. Um, and they're doing that in live. And uh, I'm not going to go into Chaos Monkey. People can look it up if you know what it yes, is. Yeah, it's great, yeah. but people can go into uh, look it up. And I think that would be a great vision for all, all sectors, all industries to get to that point where you're not afraid to allow your production service to fail deliberately so you can find a problem and fix it. And just uh, building on that theme around it going from a sort of outage-focused uh, resilience uh, perspective of a, uh, of a likelihood of something occurring mm. uh, to, to a, a, the BAU and maybe the, the cause of some of those things. You see that the regulator, um, as, as, you, as you rightly mentioned, uh, in financial services, particularly where there's a lot of care of the resilience of the industry, hence mm. theoretically the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the focus of the regulator, uh, moving from um, being uh, having a, a purely outage and resilience focus to maybe going kind of up, upstream a little bit, looking at change. How do you, how do you view that? Well, I think most of us know that most of us that have grown up in technology over the last uh, 20 years or so, right, will we'll know that uh, generally instability is caused by change, right? Mm -hmm. Something has changed. It could be uh, an outage that is the change, right? It could just be, uh, sorry, that, man, that's a kind of a, a, a cyclical thing, but an outage could, could be a power failure that's, that is essentially the change that's happened, a change in state has caused an outage. Yeah. Or it could be that you've implemented code and, it, and it's, it hasn't necessarily performed the way you have, whether functionally or non-functionally, and it's caused an outage. Or it could be a bad message coming in and the, the error handling on the message in the queue isn't, isn't sufficient enough to avoid it from just falling over. So um, if you're better at change, you're better at stability, which yep. means you'll have a more resilient platform, which means that your customers and the client have a more available service at the end of the day. The challenge that we have is that as we've gone from, particularly in financial services and other industries such as a travel industry, uh, retail, logistics, from these big monolithic platforms mm. that do one thing, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they do it really well. And because of that, there's been change windows that will be like once a month or once every six months. If you think about mainframe in retail banking, it used to be you, could, you couldn't really touch the mainframe except for two weekends in July. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as we've gone from this way of architecting into lots of little micro apps, essentially performing the same functional um, uh, outcomes, but but in a in a much more granular way in terms of functionality and application delivery, and um, that's increased the volume of change, and we've got yeah, more yeah. demanding customers and clients, and we've got more demanding regulators coming and asking for some increased uh, controls or reports, etc. So there's a lot more change coming in, <laughs> yes. and so that's that's scary for a, for a board or for a company because they're sitting there going, well, I've I've got to deliver this service to my customers. And I've got to make more change. And I know that if I make more change, there's an increased risk of an outage, which means I'm going to have stability issues, which means I'm going to impact resilience, which means I'm going to impact the service to my customers. So solving 
or, or minimizing and mitigating that risk on your change upstream massively helps the downstream impact as well. So it's not all about you know, building a very resilient infrastructure platform. It's about that resilience uh, culture in an organization which starts with design, architecture and change and ends with recovery if, if things go really badly wrong. Yeah, and, and the, the, as you say, some uh, startup organizations have the ability to start in a sort of greenfield manner. A lot of existing financial services companies and wider organizations and Fortune 500s have got a more brownfield mm. uh, IT estate. Do, do you think in a, a greenfield um, setup with sort of microservices architecture, you can sort of forget about resilience, you've sort <laughs> of limited blast radius, or do you feel like the complexity that you just mentioned um, you, you've got to keep an eye on things in a, in a maybe a different way, but still keep an eye on things. Yeah, I, I don't think you ever forget about resilience. <laughs> yeah. I do think there are less challenges for some of these these greenfield startups yeah. than there are for companies that have grown organically over years and and have a, essentially inherited legacy through acquisition or through you know, kind of lack of focus on certain platforms. Ironically, because they maybe they're more stable. Uh, yeah, and then yeah. all of a sudden their legacy and, and our support. But um, the, so nobody should ignore it, right? So there's yeah, a place yeah. for resilience in every organization, whether it's a one person startup with a, an app in the app store for your iPhone, or whether it's someone who's getting into financial services for the first time doing you know, pricing or a foreign exchange or whatever it may be, right? Yeah. Or someone who's building a website that's gonna push out you know, recipes for the latest sort of docker docker orange or whatever it may be and th there is a place for resilience everywhere mm. uh and if it's in a multi-billion or you know let's say apple two trillion yes. uh, as of today well, right yeah, yeah. Uh, in 2020 it's a two trillion <laughs> market cap which is equivalent to the entire FTSE 100. you <laughs> yes. know that, that that company as much as anyone else needs to think about resilience it needs to think about customer it needs to think about client it needs to think about service and the obligations to be able to provide that service so, so coming back a little bit to, to something we discussed at the beginning, there's been some unprecedented events in, in 2020 uh, that, that we, we've seen some incredible demonstrations of operational resilience mm. sort of through Jan, Feb, March at a sort of national area and, and, a, and a company level um, of, of putting some, some sort of import, important block and tackling basics in place. And then people have sort of gone away on the summer break now. We still this sort of thing is expanding. People are coming back now. Boards are asking questions in in quarter four. Do you think this is a, a good time where people are, are going to be trying to make take some good yards and operational resilience in this period? I think people will start to think more strategically. Definitely. I mean, you, you, there there were so many heroics in the first quarter and the second quarter yeah, of this yeah. year. And I think encouragingly, if you go back to the change conversation we were having earlier there's been a lot of change in companies to be able to adapt to the changing working environment, right? So everyone's yeah. suddenly working from home. Um, and when you have a call center of 20,000 people in it, how do you suddenly change that to work from home, right? Yeah. So people have, uh, companies have managed to do that without major outage as well. A couple of glitches, of course, because yeah. it's, it's really difficult, <laughs> yeah. but without a major outage. So the changes, um, have actually moved quickly and been able to, in most cases, actually deliver the right outcome. But we've done that through heroics, right? People have yeah. said, right, let's just get it done. We've got two weeks, everyone hands to deck and we're gonna get it done. Um, now I think companies will start to take a step back and say, right, how could we have done this better? What was 
some of, what were some of the real challenges we had in getting to this point? And what do we need to do going forward? Because elements of what we've experienced through this lockdown period are likely to stay for some time. Mm-hmm. So the way that our customers and our clients will interact with us as, as companies will change. The way that our colleagues and our workforce work will change and it, or stick to some of the ways that we've implemented it now. So I do think that um, now is a great time to sort of reflect and say, okay, now we have better clarity on what's going to happen going forward. Not complete clarity, but we have better clarity on what's going forward. We've learned a lot from what's happened. Now's a good time to start to look end-to-end at our processes. So what do we need to do for change and release, for example? Is there something we could have done better there? How do we design and architect our, our platforms or our services? And it's not just about technology. It's about people. It's about teams. It's about premises. It's about third-party suppliers as well. Thinking that holistically about how that service is delivered. How do we start to deliver things in a resilient way? How do we start to plan uh, for these outages again? And think about, think a little bit more outside of the box, right? Because the, the unthinkables and the impossibles yeah, they... have suddenly happened, right? <laughs> yes. and, and we've we've survived through it, right? We're all sat here today, but, but it's, and, but unfortunately, a lot of companies haven't survived, right? And I think some of those companies inevitably, no matter how much resilience you put into their products and their propositions, the nature of what they deliver as a service has suffered and, and, and wouldn't have been able to be protected, which is very sad. But there are other companies that have unnecessarily failed. I think had they had that mindset up front, whether it's had help from uh, some of us or some of the institutions out there that are there to help them, whether they were just thinking up front about what, what ifs uh, and what if this impossible thing happened, they would have been here today and perhaps been thriving. So now's a great time to start thinking about it, in my view, and start to think about how you deliver that, how you industrialize that, how you, how you bring that together. And, and do you think also you hinted at some themes which are uh, interesting in terms of uh, how the paradigm might have changed towards um, th- there being some tolerance for uh, a degree of, of, of faults in a system as long as they're not catastrophic? Um, because I think back to, and you inspire some thoughts around my background in, in, in the space industry, and you, th- you think that, well, this thing's going to be millions of miles away from the ability to get yes. a spanner to it. Yeah. Uh, and so you need lots of levels of redundancy. You need to accept that things are going to fail at certain levels and have ways to catch that and move it forward. Because if you think that it would never, f- this thing um, can never fail uh, to any degree at all, you get, you get a sort of evolutionary drive to sort of build some of the monoliths that you talked about earlier and that phrase of that the glass cannon uh, of something that does, does a particular job well but is incredibly right. unresilient uh, under changing circumstances. Um, do, do you see that, that there's, a, there's a bit more of the sense of, of that because again it comes into, uh, there's a, resilience is a bit more BAU, that there is a bit more fluc- uh, fluctuation. There might be some minor level of outages, but you're keeping the, the main things going uh, that customers and others care about. I, 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 do, I mean, look, I think um, if you design, if you think that something's never going to go wrong, yeah. um, I mean, I'd love to live in that world, right? Yeah, yeah. It'd be great, wouldn't it? Right? <laughs> yeah. Nothing's ever going to go wrong. Everything's going to yeah. go perfectly. And I took the kids for, to, the school, to school today and, and we left 10 minutes early and we're five minutes late, you know? And... Um, but I thought that was going to happen because <laughs> yes. I've done sort of maybe a natural pessimist at heart. We've <laughs> uh, done it before. But, but it's, um, it, it, yeah, if, you, if you're thinking nothing's going to go wrong. Obviously, it's funny about the space thing. I was looking at Voyager 1 and 2 the yeah, other still day going where they are. They're in interstellar space now. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and it's still work, they're still working, right? Yeah. And it takes days for a data download because they're, they're running on 70s and 60s technology. But 
it's still working, right? And there's yeah. redundancy built into those platforms. I mean, it's still working. And we had some of the Mars probes that were trundling around for years beyond their sell-by dates. And, uh, and it's because they've been designed with failure in mind. Yeah, yeah. So I think definitely people need to think about failure. They need to think about scenarios that will cause failure. They need to build redundancy into it. And some of that's going to cost more. But in the long term, and maybe this is where we start thinking about business case. So if you build it up front, is it cheaper in the long term than having to constantly build it in and reintegrate and patch it into a platform because you're constantly supporting it and trying to get it working again and trying to then work out how you can get two of them bolted onto the one thing that you design in the first place. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's the sort of thing, if you, if you design it well up front, it will, uh, it will last longer and it will be more supportable. And I think that that leads on to a, a good segue that I'd love to pick your brains on of that sort of operational resilience maturity levels of, of where some are starting from uh, and, and where some are going to, which you meant mm. that sort of chaos monkey, mm. um, uh, BAU resilience, uh, almost deliberately taking services down, or actually actually deliberately taking yeah. services down uh, and seeing how things go. I wonder if you could give us your, your perspective on that, that sort of, that spectrum of operational resilience and how, how people can take good steps along the way. When I was at uh, uh, another bank uh, many years ago, <laughs> uh, we were joking with the COO that he'd love to have like a big red button on his desk that he could just press and one of the data centers would just shut down. Yes. Right? And no one would notice, right? So obviously the infrastructure guys would notice because they'd be running around going, ah, and yeah. trying to put everything back up again. But, but actually nobody would notice from a service perspective because there was enough resilience yeah, yeah. built into the system and enough automation built into the recovery of those systems or, or, just, um, um, or they were just naturally resilient so you didn't need recovery in the first place, right? Yeah. That it would just happen. Um, I think we're a very, very long way, and this was over, this is probably over ten years ago. I had this conversation, right? And so <laughs> yeah. we're a very, very long way from that today in most organisations. But it, it should be a goal and an objective. Yeah. There's more and more dependency on technology in every industry and in every sector we're in, and it's not going to like diminish. We're not going to get less dependent on technology unless there's some big revolution of some sort, and we become yeah, uh, yeah. we go back to living in caves. But you know, if you can start to think like Netflix have about how they can constantly attack their infrastructure and their applications to try and deliberately to make it fail so they can find a hole, patch it, uh, and therefore they've designed their applications and their infrastructure and their delivery service and the content delivery service to be resilient up front because they know that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that thinking and that cycle and that connected loop just makes for a better service for customers and it's easier to support it's, you, know, you don't have to worry about having 101 spare parts for a server because you can live without that server for, for weeks. And, and if you look at a lot of these cloud providers, AWS, Google, um, and Azure, right? You know, Microsoft, they, they, they have these containers of servers and they don't really care if half that container is dead because they've got so many other ones. Eventually they'll go and just lift up the container, stick a new one in and plug it in and off they go. Yeah. Um, and I think that if you can apply that same sort of methodology to applications, to third parties, to everything that, that is responsible for delivering a service, you inevitably provide a future-proof, resilient platform. And you have to maintain that as well. You can't just sort of put it in there and go, ta-da, well, that's my job done, I'm done. <laughs> yes. but, but it should, in the medium to long term, cost less for an organization to deliver that service that way and be better for your customers. And that could be internal or external customers as well because the service is more available. No, I, I, I absolutely agree. And, and what advice? And it will, would, sorry, and it will scale as well. That's the important thing, right? If you built it that way, <laughs> yes. you can scale it better. 
rather than just saying it's it's a you know it can do 100 and now I need it to do 120. Oh, I'm going to have to go and re-architect the entire platform. If you've built it to be resilient, it should be much easier to scale as well. Well, yeah, I think that if extra degrees of freedom, absolutely right mm. in that additional uh, levels of resilience. And what would you, what advice would you give to some of those that are sort of early on their journey and maybe some more of those brownfield sites that you've mentioned where it's sort of mainframe, a lot of on-prem distributed uh, applications where perhaps there's a, there is a compliance overhead and rightly so. Uh, yeah. of doing particular things like uh, full data center failover tests and ensuring their recovery time objectives for different categories uh, of application, uh, which you've got to go and do. Uh, but you, you want, how, how do you step beyond that to, to be giving sort of um, the, the, the execution-based uplift to operational resilience should event occur over and above the sort of the testing and that sort of starting yeah. point that many, many are at? Well, I guess if you break it down into... Um if you start with Greenfield, right, so a startup, yeah. for example, I think you would do well to uh, look at how Netflix do things yeah. and deliver services. Look at uh, how, you know, talk to AWS or Azure, whoever your cloud service provider is, and find out how to deliver technology in a resilient way. Mm. Think very hard about your workforce and how you really need to put, distribute your workforce to make it resilient. So if you stick everyone in one building in London, Yes. and London has a power outage or a terrorist event that means that those people can't get to work anymore and they used to work off desktops sitting underneath their desk because that seemed like the cheapest way of starting up your office in the first place. Mm. You're not going to have a workforce anymore that can, that can work effectively. So just start to think about some of these things in the way that you build your services. And when you're talking to your third parties as you're starting up, talk to them about resilience. Talk to them about how they can build a resilient service. Um, and, and, and one thing which is relevant to the brownfield as well, so pretty much everything for brown is, is, is relevant for green, but those are probably things that they can do yeah, yeah, on day zero or day one rather than green, brownfield that's having to reverse engineer a lot of things. One of the challenges that we have in, 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 um, in sort of older companies and more established uh, companies with more established services is uh, what we sort of all tribal knowledge a little bit, right? So we yeah. have a lot of people that know stuff and they've been there for 10, 20, 30 years, and they know how to do these things. It's not often written down very well. And, and, this, and this is the same conversation that I've been having for 20 years as well. So this isn't a, a new problem, yeah. right? It's been the same problem. And if you look at year 2000, which was a great example yes, of yeah. that, and I know that a lot of people watching this today were probably not even born <laughs> uh, in the year 2000, however, or won't, won't know what happened. But in Y2K, when everyone thought the planes were gonna fall out of the sky <laughs> at the stroke of midnight, um, we had to dust off a lot of people who, who knew COBOL because yeah. that wasn't something that we coded with anymore and, and all the people that did code in it were retired. Right? Yeah. So we had to bring a lot of people back in again to try and help us to, to update our, our platforms because it wasn't written down right? and nobody thought it needed to be written down. And so one of the biggest enablers to getting us to a point where we can actually have resilience is to write stuff down, right? And, and, <laughs> yeah. and as a run the bank, lead uh, sort of you know, running an organization's platforms and technologies yeah, yeah. and supporting them, whether it's incident management or, or even change to implement change, but certainly incident management and some of the application support functions and starter day checks, etc. I know full well that I had things in Excel, on SharePoints, in, in Jira, all over the place, and mm -hmm. then in ServiceNow knowledge articles and Service Center knowledge article. Everything was everywhere, or it's just on a Word document, or someone has scribbled it on a notepad on their desk. That was basically how we would run things. Yep. And so the step one was always to say, well, let's just get it into one, one, one place in one format. 
in one standard process. And so once you've done that, all of a sudden you can sort of, from a methodology perspective, you can actually start to think about how to automate a lot of those activities, which, which does bring resilience. It shifts the risk away from people to technology. Yep. But if you've got it in technology, then it's a little bit easier for, it, for you to start to pick at it and make it more resilient as well. So automating a lot of what we do uh, and how we do it. Uh, and these are processes around the technology themselves. Um, and then the same when we get into, I mean, Chaos Monkey, at the end of the day, is like an automated resilience plan. Yeah, yes, right? yes. It's just sort of going yeah. after stuff yeah. and, and, and destroying it or trying to. And if you've got everything written down, you know how things work, you know how your organization, how the processes work to actually manage a, a, a system, and you've got automated testing, for example, for unit testing and integration testing, regression testing, functional, non-functional testing, you know exactly how to attack something uh, to start to, uh, to pick at it and make it fail and then make it more resilient off the back of it. One of the other challenges that we have, and I know we probably start to talk a little bit more about how cutover works because so a lot of what I've talked about, cutover really helps with. And, then as you, and I'm sure you see this in some of your clients as well, where as a manager or someone who's trying to provide some oversight to a change weekend or you know, as, as a head of resilience, I would want to know where we were on resilience testing or, or how we were performing against some of our KRIs that we defined in the policy and standards yeah. and, uh, that the boards, risk boards or the regulators were asking us about is transparency and auditability of it. Yep. And I, I, I never um, you know, really found in some of my previous roles that it was easy to get hold of stuff. And it was stuff that was kind of, you'd say, can you just tell me how many tests we've done in the last three months and yes. uh, what percentage of them were successful or not. And you sort of be left with this, these people who, who are staring at you in the room and they're like, oh, I, I can't believe you asked that question. <laughs> yes. that's, 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 that's my week gone while I try and work out the answer to that yeah. question. And I think that, you know, that, that sort of practically is something as a, as a brownfield you need to think about how you actually, because you can create all this great automation, you can write everything down and you can build all these processes. But if you can't really report on it or tell people what you've done and how you've done it, it's kind of blind, it's irrelevant from a management perspective. So, but I would say that um, most brownfield companies are going through some sort of cloud discussion. Yep. Right. So they're all talking about cloud this, cloud, cloud, cloud. And cloud is, you know, often put out there as being the silver bullet exactly, for any problem, yes. right? You know, I've got resilience issues, cloud. I've got stability <laughs> and supportability issues, cloud. You know, I've got regulatory issues, cloud. Uh, and obviously, we know that that's not the case, yeah, right? You exactly. have to actually put quite a lot of effort into it. But if you're going to do that anyway, that's a great time for you to start building it to be resilient. It may cost a little more in the migration, but actually it's the right thing to do in the medium to long term in terms of cost. So quite a lot of things to think about. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I definitely would say that standardization and automation and transparency is a, is a massive enabler to that as well. I think you've touched on so many great points. I think you're absolutely right on that codification early stages where it's, as you say, it's a distributed in people's heads, Excel spreadsheets, phone calls, emails. Uh, and I'd think about that as like the dark matter of the enterprise. Yeah. Uh, and it is there, you know, there's no way you can build or get better on that until you, you put in some sort of form where you're getting structured data. Uh, and, and that, as you say, again, you highlighted the great point that you make that structured data visible because even if it is the, the most up-to-date uh, choose your technical orchestration tool of your choice, Ansible, other things that, that, that are supposedly being able to execute some of these recovery of microservices pieces. If you can't see that happening away from uh, what I call the matrix or the developer's green screen, which is fine for some of the devs to see, but if it isn't up what I would call the human stack up to the CIO and others when boards are asking questions uh, and, and you can't see what's going on, it, 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 it makes the 
it, it, it makes it more fragile again. The, the organization isn't resilient because the organization is about people and machine uh, coming together rather than thinking it's just about, about one or the other, as you say. And you rightly highlight uh, the, the, um, the sort of cloud, moving to cloud native uh, presents many uh, positive uh, things in that, but, but it's, it's definitely not a silver bullet. There's, there's ways you could uh, hugely wipe out 9,000 services in a, milli- a couple of milliseconds yeah. <laughs> if, you, uh, if you get some things uh, wrong there, even though it, it, it generally uh, I think there's a force multiplier for enabling lots of resilience uh, uh, during it. So I think you, you, given, given uh, listeners lots of food for thought uh, for that entire uh, resilience journey. And I did want to pick your brains a little bit as a, a bit that you mentioned earlier about you've got extensive experience from being a sort of run the bank professional and change the bank professional from from owning the the uptime and how these all these services run and that change is delivered effectively because it's underpinning the strategy and sometimes uh, the ability to get even more resilient how how should people in that that those hot seats think about um the resilience journey um i just wonder if i pick pick your brains on that well, I think that there are similar challenges for both green and brownfield, yeah. and then there are other ones that are, that are clearly there. We talked about earlier in the in the conversation about some of the brownfield challenges. But I mean, greenfield at the end of the day, it's about thinking about how much it really costs to create a resilient product, whatever it is you're going to do, service product, etc. So you would do well just to look at how Netflix do things to talk to your cloud service providers. I'm assuming most greenfields will probably be using cloud for technology, but also thinking. How you're, how you're going to provide your uh, services in terms of people, right? So your workforce, where are they going to be? Are they, are they going to be in one big building? Because if that big building isn't available for some reason, then you put desktops mm-hmm. under it, they're not going to be able to work. Are you going to use one telef- telephony provider? Are you going to use um, uh, one third-party provider for a very important part of your uh, service as well? So think about everything that you do and how you can make it resilient to start with by design, right? So, and, uh, and, and, and it may mean that you end up as a startup spending a little bit more up front, and maybe you can't do that, and that just is a compromise you have to make, and you have to accept the risk mm-hmm. to be able to get yourself running, and, and that can come later, but it will probably take, it'll be more difficult to do it later. Mm-hmm. But definitely think about how you deliver things. Uh, and then as a brownfield, I would say there's a lot that the greenfield will learn from brownfield as well, because some of the biggest challenges we have is because we have this legacy, because we have this, mm. this big tribal knowledge in organizations where people have things stuck in their heads and yeah. it's not written down in a consistent way, in a consistent format, that uh, that's probably one of the big things to do first is to make sure that if you, you have a standard process of how you document, how you run things how you implement changes, how you recover from things, how you fail over from things. And then you start to think about how you automate as much of that as possible because yeah. you're moving risk from maybe humans to technology. But at the end of the day, if it's in technology, you can start to throw some of the chaos monkey methodology at it to start to poke it and see how you can make it better. And, and if you also automated your unit testing, your regression testing, your functional testing and non-functional testing, everything, comes in terms of the application side of things, the infrastructure side of things, how you're actually delivering service end to end and you understand that, then you can automate an awful lot of, uh, of just doing the running and, 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 yeah. and implementing change, but also attacking it and starting to uh, poke holes at it. So if you can <clears throat> start to think about writing down as much as you can in a consistent way, and I guess we're talking, at the end of the day, your product cut over does a lot of this, right? It yes, helps yeah. with a lot of this. And, and, and 
but you know, we, we used to say, well, Excel is the standard tool for us, or SharePoint is the standard <laughs> tools we talked about before. Maybe everyone wants to go into SharePoint and write everything down. SharePoint's not designed to, to do that, but you, know, you could use that. You could start somewhere at the end of the day. Um, but the other thing, though, which, which sort of starts to lead to exploring products in the market is as a, a manager with oversight, you know, I really, really, really wanted to know how things are going. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So whether it's doing a big change on the weekend, whether we're in a major incident and I'd like to understand where we are, uh, whether it's actually in a big uh, DR weekend, test weekend, or actually in a real life crisis that we're managing through that may be something that we've built up through some of the standard template uh, run books that we have. And it could be a, you know, a cyber attack, it could be a, uh, a major incident um, which is more of a reputational one, for example, where we're trying to, we may not have had major technical issue, but for whatever reason, there's some, uh, some brand tarnishing issue out there that we're trying to solve. Or it could be a you know, standard technology outage, whatever it may be, right? If I'm in the middle of it, I want to know where we are and who's doing what and what happens next. And, um, and then you start to think about these big recovery scenarios as well. And then, of course, after and a lot of the times during an event, I've got someone upstairs who's, who's yeah, asking yeah. what's happening. They've got someone upstairs and they've got someone outside in, in a big building with a sort of regulatory symbol on it asking them questions as well. And through things like the senior management framework, which is, um, which is in the UK in particular, or just generally when regulators expect an answer to a question very quickly or executives expect an answer to a question very quickly, which is not an unreasonable thing yes, exactly. in these situations. <laughs> um, you know, it's good to have that level of transparency on what you're doing, that ability to sort of just click a button and say, well, we're here. Or, you know, if someone says two weeks ago or three months ago or whatever it is, how many DR tests did you do and were they successful? Sometimes that can take a long time to get an answer to that, depending on the level of maturity of an organization. But if you've got that data and you can just run a report off and it's there, you've got auditability, you've got transparency, it helps with compliance, it helps with audits, it helps with internal and external audits, it helps with the uh, regula regulators and just general executive transparency and awareness of, of what's happening. So visibility is a, is a big thing to think about as well in Brownfield. But as I mentioned earlier, the biggest thing is culture, resilience culture, yeah. right? So if you've got, if you've started up front to build things and design things in a resilient way and people understand why it's important and actually could be a differentiator, can help you flourish uh, and thrive during these types of events, you've won the most difficult battle to actually building resilience into your organization. And, and some uh, that we'd talk to would be in a starting position where they, um, due to various constraints, they may be doing a, a full data center failover test uh, once a year uh, and getting some sense of how long it takes to recover applications f from that. And they want to move to uh, having some of the things that you're talking about where it's a more regular testing uh, schedule where you're building that resilience culture uh, you've talked about obviously codifying and then having systems that help you really sort of um, uh, execute in the moment, provide transparency. Do you think that's the key to unlocking, being able to move from that sort of static compliance-based single test a year to a more sort of resilient culture yeah. um, along that maturity curve? A absolutely. And this is where you know, resilience as a sort of embedded in the culture of an organization means that it's not just for Christmas. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, and, yeah. and you've got... It comes back to what we were saying earlier in the conversation where the clipboard and the high-vis jacket, yes. yeah. jacket wearing kind of business continuity professional will turn up and, and you ask questions about yeah, yeah, yeah. whether you've done your annual this or that. 
at, into I've, it's just part of what I yes. do day in day out and you know we, we've, we have a lot of um, critical systems like payment systems in the industry that have been doing this for years where they've been just continuously essentially failing back and forth and running in DR or just in high availability configurations and, and so when someone comes and says have you done your DR test I'm like well I don't, I don't really need to do my DR yeah. test I need to prove that my resilience plans are, are being operated on a regular basis and it could be weekly, it could be monthly, it could be something like that. And that's just more about a procedure to say, did we do it this way? Yes, I did it that way. Okay, great. Um, and have you demonstrated, well, I have because it's running and, and nothing's broken and the money's still moving around. And I think that um, if you can move into just mm. BAU, resilience is the same as run, yes. right? And, and it kind of, when you think about it logically, why should it be any different? Because you shouldn't spend, like if you had a big um, disaster, you don't have the luxury of having a sort of seven, eight, 12 week run up to it <laughs> yeah. to plan and prepare for a data center failover. Yeah. Right? It, it just happened. Yeah. And so it should just, you should just, the machine should just kick in. You say, okay, great, page one or whatever, or tab one or top of page, you know, whatever it is, just go, right? And we're getting everything over for stuff that didn't happen automatically. Yeah, automatically yeah, yeah. because I think there's still a little bit of intervention needed in some cases. But, you know, that, that's, the, that's the ideal is that the technology will survive any issue because it's all automated, it's all built resilient, etc. Your workforce is done in the same way, you design it in the same way, so they're all scattered around. Let's say if you're a UK-based company, you only have UK employees, rather than sticking everyone in a, in a headquarters in Glasgow, you've got them scattered across uh, Scotland or the northeast of England and the northwest of England in, in, their, in their homes or different sort of co-working locations and they just carry on doing what they were doing and your third-party providers have operated in the same way or you've got multiple third-party providers depending on what it is you bought so you can just say well they've gone down and I'm just going to carry on with provider B with the service and just ramp up accordingly. If you've designed it that way it's going to be great. I think absolutely right. I think which team would you bet on? You, you, and everyone wants to get to this position. You bet on the team that's been doing this stuff um, day in, day out versus the team that unfortunately was only exposed to it once a year, had to dust off the plan uh, and, and kind of work it out. Now, um, would you say that it sounds like the, the, the future is that uh, testing is the norm, testing is part of every day, resilience is part of every day and resilience is part of your culture and it's as if those sort of maybe unfairly titled compliance-based plans mm. are valued by the run the bank and change the bank professional far more because they see it as a way um, to continue their fine art at an even better level every time rather than unfortunately being caught out by an unpredictable incident once x period um, and not running so well. So I think certainly if you if your DR plan or your resilience plan is the same as your BAU plan, then of course, if you're a run the bank professional, you'd be like, well, I, you know, I support this 100%, you know, this is just what I do day in, day out, and therefore I'm now more bought into this recovery strategy and resilience strategy, et cetera, because it's just how I do things. So yeah, I, I, I think that um, you win the hearts and minds of an organization, which I know sounds a bit fluffy, right? But it's true, you're in the hearts of mind and you build that resilience culture that we keep talking about by actually just doing it the way you always do things. And so the outcome of that, of course, is you can tick boxes, which is great, and you yep. can demonstrate the controls there. And I know we kind of, it sounds a little bit, you know, like I'm kind of um, uh, poo-pooing the, the, the compliance role in a lot of it. I'm not, right? It's because it's really important, Because you, right? yeah, yeah. you have to have controls in there <laughs> and you have, to, you have to understand your risks you have to understand the controls that you have to mitigate those yep. risks and therefore you know what your residual risks are generally. But, 
but it, it's I'm sort of playing the, the 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 stereotype a little bit of a manager who doesn't care about this stuff and just wants to get their yeah, yeah. get their job done that they're paid for, which is basically in most cases just to release code and deliver code for uh, in technology at least for uh, for their, their internal clients or as a service owner to deliver a service to their uh, internal or external clients. And so they don't really necessarily want to get involved in all this sort of box ticking. They just want to do their day job, but. If your day job is the same as your compliance job, if you know, or obligations, which it should be, yeah, then yeah. it's great, right? Because you have more confidence in, if you're in a risk management role or in a compliance role or a second line role or even an audit or an external auditor that the, the way that we actually do business is the same as whether it's BAU or whether it's in some sort of recovery um, strategy then that's, that's a really good outcome for, for resilience, uh, you know, operational resilience program for an organization. And, and I wonder if you had any more thoughts because you've uh, been in those hot seats of the uh, uh, some fairly uh, hectic run the bank and change the bank uh, positions uh, for some huge organizations in, in your career. Uh, from, from their perspectives, are there, are there any, any other points you'd want to make in terms of uh, the, the future of resilience? Well, I mean, resilience is the same as stability. It's the same as availability. Mm. Resilience is just part of how you do business and how you yeah. deliver a service. If you don't see it that way, then you need to um, start seeing it that way. Yeah. And think about how your organization delivers those programs and influence those organizations to change it. Uh, because it must be the same. If it isn't, yeah. then your organization is not resilient. Right? And that, that fundamentally, if it's different to what you normally do, like materially different, your organization is not resilient. So yeah, yeah, yeah. do something about it. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 yeah that, that wouldn't work otherwise. Good stuff. Well, I think that they were the main points that I wanted to go through today, Mike, in terms of uh, pick, picking your good brains on that. I, right. I, I've, I've really enjoyed that. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, scribbling down notes from uh, <laughs> taking a review of uh, the, uh, the, the film myself. Uh, but really appreciate you taking time for, for the session. Uh, and uh, great thanks to, for sharing your to, thoughts. Great to have the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. <laughs>